Hi, this is Professor of Photography Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number eight of History of Photography. This class session, a little bit shorter than others, where we talk about stop-motion photography, starting with Edward Muybridge and his experiments, looking briefly at uh, Etienne Jules Marais and his contributions to stop-motion photography, and then carrying on to the 20th century. Here we are joining our class in progress. Today's presentation is at least in part about Edward Moybridge, and Moybridge is a sort of an interesting character. We've looked at him in at least one respect as a major American landscape photographer, but imagine a photographer whose, a photographer whose influence is so far-ranging that contemporary orchestral composer Philip Glass, a very important 20th century composer, 20th and 21st century composer, created a, a mixed media piece in 1983 based on Moybridge's life called The Photographer. Uh, so imagine that idea that a photographer has such influence that he becomes an inspiration for a musical composer. So Moybridge uh, solves the problem of motion because one of the earliest pieces of photography's problem was this problem of stopping motion. So we've looked at uh, the first photograph that included a person and the fact that the person was standing still for uh, a, uh, a long enough time to be sort of held captive by the long stare of the camera was a significant aspect of photography. And one of the things that we've spent some time looking at is how photography, as it sped up, became more capable in terms of capturing motion uh, and began to show people a world that they were not really expecting to see. Uh, so there's another kind of a, a, a piece to this puzzle, is that technologies speeding up was another part of how photography was approaching this problem. So you may remember that we've looked at this book before by a woman named Rebecca Solnit. Uh, it's, a, it's a book that, uh, that I have just really gotten a lot out of. It's very short, actually. It's really a, a wonderful read, you know, kind of an, a weekend kind of a read. It's called River of Shadows, Edward Moybridge and the Technological Wild West. So here's a little snippet from, uh, from Solnit's book, talking about passenger trains. The passenger train's speed of 35 miles per hour was nearly as fast as the fastest horse 
And unlike a gallop, it could be sustained almost indefinitely. It was a dizzying speed. Passengers found the landscape out the train windows was blurred, impossible to contemplate, erased by speeds that would seem a slow crawl to us. Those who watched the trains approach sometimes thought they were getting physically larger because the perceptual change in a large object approaching at that speed was an unprecedented phenomenon. If distance was measured in time, the world had suddenly begin, begun to shrink. Places connected by railroads were, for all practical purposes, several times closer to each other than they had ever been before. And a stock phrase of the day was the annihilation of time and space. The annihilation of time and space. So it's kind of funny to think about a speed that, you know, if you're driving down Roosevelt Road at 35 miles an hour, uh, you know, people are probably passing you or you're feeling like somebody in front of you is going too slowly, even though that's the speed limit, right? But 35 miles per hour for us seems like, you know, a crawl, relatively speaking. But that kind of speed was something that people were unaccustomed to. It was dizzying, as Solnit suggests. And the idea that people really thought that the train itself was getting physically larger because nobody had ever seen something that big go that fast. And that kind of time perception is an important part of what we're going to talk about this afternoon. Uh, another sort of interesting note here is the Transcontinental Railroad. The Transcontinental Railroad. Here we have a photograph made uh, by A.J. Russell. Remember him from the 19th century landscape class? And it's a photograph of the driving of the Golden Spike. The driving of the Golden Spike was the thing that united the East Coast of, and the West Coast of America. So the Transcontinental Railroad was ceremonially completed May 10, 1869 at the famous Golden Spike Ceremony at Promontory, Utah. The completion of the railroad was the start of a nationwide mechanized transportation network that revolutionized the population and economy of the American West. And it catalyzed the transition from the wagon trains of previous decades to a modern transportation system. But it did something else, too. It did another thing. And that other thing was that it created a sense of time for Americans. This is an interesting thing. It created a sense of time for Americans because of how the uh, action of this railroad's uh, uh, completion was communicated. So the Inter Intercontinental Railroad was started on the West Coast and on the East Coast, and the two teams of people building the railroad got closer and closer and closer together and finally met up here. And to mark the ceremony of the two tracks coming together, they pounded home a golden spike with a silver hammer. Because gold and silver, of course, were the sort of catalysts for one of the reasons that they wanted to build a railroad in the first place, because so much uh, of those precious metals had been found in the West. So they drive home a golden spike with a silver hammer. But before they did that, they connected the two things with a wire in such a way that when the silver hammer hit the golden spike, ceremonially, of course, what happened was a circuit was created. And that sent out a signal over the telegraph system. And the telegraph system then reported that at that, that moment, the nation's entire land mass was united with a railroad. 
And what was interesting was that when that moment occurred, everybody around the country reported it in newspapers and on you know, town hall steps and so forth and so on. And they said that at 9.56 a.m., the golden spike was driven home. They said that in St. Louis. And in, in uh, Chicago, they said at 10.47, the golden spike was driven home. And in Cincinnati, they said at 9.30, the golden spike was driven home. And in New York City, they said that at 9 o'clock, the golden spike was driven home. The problem was there was no consistent sense of time. And if you think about it, you didn't really need a consistent sense of time. Because if you were on horseback and you left here, Glen Ellen, to ride a horse across trails and roadways to Milwaukee, it might take, you know, half the day or a little bit more, maybe a whole day to ride to Milwaukee on a, on a horse. And so it wouldn't really matter if you got there in 47 minutes or, you know, 46 minutes later or earlier than any other time, right? There was no need for a consistent time. But if you were told that the train was departing the station at 11 a.m., you needed to be there at 11 a.m. because if you were there at 11.05, you'd miss the train. So suddenly there was a need for a national sense of time. And for a long time, railway stations would have two clocks, local time and railroad time. And those two clocks would often be different by as much as a couple of hours until the time began to synchronize itself across the continent. It was also when we began to look at uh, the idea of time zones and needing to zone off the times of when the sun rose and set in various times time zones of, of our country. So it's interesting to note that at the same time that we're about to talk about stop-motion photography, time in and of itself became a sort of important topic for people in terms of what they were thinking about. Photographically, of course, we've seen instantaneous views beginning to appear in the 1860s. And we saw them from a number of different sort of fronts. First of all, faster plates made possible uh, photographs in shorter periods of time, better and faster lenses, and of course also shorter focal length or wider angle lenses. Let's think about this for a second. When we put a wide angle lens on the camera, what happens to all the stuff in the frame? It's smaller, right? You zoom out your zoom lens to wider angle, everything gets smaller. And when something's smaller, it appears not to be going quite so fast. The equation I always make is the difference between standing on a hill a mile away from a highway and watching cars drive along or standing on the edge of the expressway with a flat tire and watching cars go along. They're going the same speed, but by golly, do they look like they're going three or 400 miles an hour when you're standing at the side of the expressway. Right? You know, there's, if anybody's ever had that unpleasant experience, you know, stranded at the edge of the expressway and watching those cars go by and being frightened because, you know, if something happens, something, something bad's going to happen, right? So, uh, so short focal length lenses made possible stop motion pictures. And we've already looked at this before, this Moybridge and stop motion. And there is a story that's kind of, uh, at least according to Rebecca Solnit in the book that we just uh, looked at, 
uh, is probably not true or at least apocryphal or you know, perhaps come some sort of combination of fact and fiction. But the story goes that the governor of California, Leland Stanford, who's here on the left, uh, was uh, engaged in a kind of wager with a friend. And that wager was that uh, his, Stanford's racehorse, at full gallop couldn't possibly have all four of its hoofs off the ground at one time because an animal of that size would clearly fall down if it weren't in some way anchored to the earth. And Stanford said, well, I, I don't actually know this guy you know, personally, but I know a guy who knows a guy who knows this photographer, Edward Moybridge. And you can kind of see which one's the governor of California. You know, they're both bearded guys, but you know, one looks like the governor of California and one looks maybe more like a photographer. So he contacts this guy who knows the guy who knows Moybridge, and he gets Moybridge to figure out how to photograph a horse at full gallop. And uh, uh, what we get is uh, Moybridge coming to a racetrack and figuring out that if he takes and places uh, some cameras along the edge of the racetrack, in this building over here, there's Moybridge looking a little more respectable, like the striped trousers. Um, so he figures out that if he puts cameras over here and puts lime down on the surface of the racetrack and puts up a white uh, background back here and runs sort of strings down from the camera's shutters, a device that he created, we'll talk about it here in a second, runs strings across the racetrack so that as the horse ran across the racetrack, it would break the string, trip the shutter of the camera, one after the other after the other, and of course in the end, proving that a horse did in fact have all four of its hooves off the ground at one time. To us, having seen stop motion photographs in sports magazines and newspapers and so forth for years and years and years, making them ourselves, this doesn't seem like such a phenomenon. But Moybridge was a guy who'd figured out how to make this shutter fire at one two thousandth of a second. Two planks or two little boards going next to each other in a slit across the plane of the camera. You'll notice that the shutter kind of looks like a camera, but not. This is actually mounted outside of the lens. So the camera is just the dark box with a lens on it, and then the shutter is this mechanism that's outside of the lens. The camera actually sits inside this this hole, hole here, and the shutter is, is outside of the lens. So Moybridge figures out how to do that and figures out how to stop motion, making one photograph of every moment in time. What's really interesting about this is that Moybridge isn't the only guy doing this at this, at this particular time period. There's another guy doing it in France, and there are probably others too, but these are the two that have come to the fore in terms of being people we know we're working at about the same time period. This guy named Etienne Jules Marais. Etienne Jules Marais, who was also interested in stop motion pictures, but he had a kind of a different methodology of doing it. Instead of Moybridge's approach of making a single picture on a single plate with the object in a certain spot, certain place in the frame, Murray is interested in seeing what happens when he tries to record all of the images on a single plate. And he does this uh, through a kind of a clever application of technology. So uh, here is one of Murray's 
photographs. And what he did is he set up a camera in front of a spot, you know, gets this guy to do a fencing move. And as he does, he has a disc rotating in front of the camera's lens. And it's a disc that has a hole in it. And the hole, as the disc rotates around, the hole goes in front of the lens and then covers the lens, in front of the lens and covers the lens, in front of and covers, in front of and covers, in front of and covers. And the faster the disc spins, the more rapidly the photographs are made. So as the disc spins around, he gets the guy to do his thrust maneuver. And you can see that he's recorded more clearly when he is standing still before the move and recorded more clearly at the end after the move because he's in one place at the end of that movement, all right? At the beginning, at the end of that movement. So <coughs> Murray plays around with this idea. Lots of different applications of this multiple plate device uh, or multiple exposure on a single plate device trying out various things. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about these pictures is how incredibly not interesting they are. You know, they're kind of dull. Because these photographers, Moybridge and Murray, were not looking at this in terms of something that they were thinking of as beautiful photography. This was science on a fairly pure level from their point of view. So when we look at this upper left-hand picture of this guy wearing this, you know, in profile, wearing this weird little headgear, what's happened here is they've attached a string that is uh, sort of at the guy's uh, juncture of where his jaw is. You can kind of feel that on your own head, like where your jawbone, you know, moves. And that string is then attached down here at the hinge and then out here at the chin. And then they have him chew and make multiple exposures of what it looks like when he chews, which to us is like, what? But think about what they're doing. They're trying to break down motion using photographic methods to examine it in some way. So, you know, this guy's shuffling back and forth or jumping or jumping up and down, and the objective is to record them at varying places. Here's Murray and in his uh, outdoor studio. Here's his camera. Here's Murray wearing a nice white lab coat. Um, and here's his subject. And here is the electrically driven machinery that spins the disc in front of the camera. So it's like this combination of little pieces of technology adding up to a much larger piece of technology. Murray recognizes at some point that his method may have some flaws because he needs to move the subject far enough in each picture to be able to see it. Is that you know, you could see that that the fencing image was a lot less effective than some of the other ones. So he comes up with this thing that he calls a gun camera. And I, I just love this picture. This whole thing is just so fun. Like this guy, he kind of looks like a Marx Brothers, you know, person. And then a little plant come out of his head. Murray <laughs> over here with his gun camera uh, with one of the magazines. So he, what he'd do is he'd put a glass plate negative material inside this thing. And he had a spring-driven mechanism inside the camera. And he'd use the camera like a gun and pull the trigger. The spring-driven mechanism would allow the, the, the plate to rotate a new section of the plate into position. 
the shutter would open and close, a new plate would rotate into position, the shutter would open and close, a new plate would rotate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The gun camera, which then allowed him to make pictures that looked like this. So this is from you know, a contact print of the, of the negative from the camera itself. And then they could be stitched together by printing them on multiple or singular sheets of photo paper so that you could get some semblance of the reassembly of the motion. And again, what we get are pictures that aren't very interesting. This guy is singing, right? So it doesn't really look like much. So Murray, intriguingly, people knew about his experiments, but nobody knew how extensive they were until about 25 years ago when a huge trove of his images were discovered in an attic in a barn outside of Paris. So one of the things that I was fascinated about by that 25 or so years ago when it happened was, well, wow, <coughs> photography's history keeps getting added to by discoveries that are made by historians who are looking for these kinds of things. So uh, at some point, Moybridge decides to get serious. <coughs> it's very serious about his uh, experiments, but first he has to pause uh, because he was on trial for murder. He was on trial for murdering his wife's lover. Uh, which, in, in the main, he did. He walked up to his wife's lover's rooming house, knocked on the door, asked for the guy, shot him point blank in the head. But apparently he was acquitted because in the 19th century, shooting your wife's lover is you know, an acceptable thing to do, I guess. So, uh, but he leaves, uh, leaves town for a while to kind of let the sensation die uh, down. And in 1877, he comes back uh, to the San Francisco area and begins working in earnest. And he uses this electrical machinery to aid in the process. The result of his efforts was 100,000, give or take, photographs. 100,000 photographs. His goal was this last bullet item. He wanted to create something that he called an encyclopedia of human and animal locomotion. An encyclopedia, an encyclopedia meaning a comprehensive, exhaustive overview of human and animal locomotion. So that was his goal. And again, it had very little to do with, uh, with art. It was completely about science in his mind. <clears throat> Moybridge's equipment that he ended up uh, coming up with, his equipment, uh, I was wondering if they, like, I, you know, I've got, an, I've got a couple of things with sound in this presentation, and I thought it was me. So it's like, wait, is there sound on this slide? So, uh, so here is one of his setups of cameras. We talked about this a little bit a, a few weeks ago, some plates that would go into these cameras, and then a drawing of what it was that this was sort of set up to be. So here is one bank of cameras, another bank of cameras, and another bank of cameras. And he'd set it up so that camera 1A, lens, lens 1 on camera bank A, would fire at the same time as lens 1 on camera bank B at the same time as lens 1 on camera bank C. So that he would get the same exact moment in time from several different points of view. Here's a, a, a picture of the, one of the pieces of mechanical equipment that he used to get these cameras 
shutters to fire at the moments that he was asking them to do it. And here is uh, Moybridge himself commemorated in a uh, 32 cent stamp. So you can kind of give a sense of how long ago the stamp was out. About three weeks, yeah, about three weeks ago. I was wondering if anybody would pick up on that joke. Yeah, 32-cent stamp about three weeks ago. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, uh, that idea of being able to photograph from multiple points of view uh, at the same time was something. So uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time looking at these pictures, but I really just want you to see the range of different types of photographs that we're talking about. And not just animals and not just humans, humans doing things, running, kicking, throwing, flexing, jumping, etc., 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 wrestling, you know, lots and lots and lots of differences, uh, different types of things. Intriguingly, though, because Moybridge wasn't really a scientist, he was really a photographer, he was thinking that he was applying a kind of scientific mentality to this project, but there are some interesting 19th century cultural biases here. So if we look, looked at those photographs we just looked at of men doing manly things, running, jumping, wrestling, throwing, kicking, now we have pictures of women splashing water, taking their clothes off, putting their clothes on, taking their clothes off some more, dancing, drinking water with the help of another woman, crawling, getting in and out of bed. So it's interesting, isn't it, to sort of look at the sort of cultural sense of what it is that Moybridge is doing, even though he sort of imagines himself as being a scientist in some way. Uh, really what he is, is sort of defining some of the cultural roles and the way in which uh, gender stuff kind of gets translated. Um, because he's not really approaching it in a purely scientific way. He's kind of looking at it in a different way. He photographed children as well, seeing how their bodies are different from adult bodies. Animals, children, <coughs> adults men, women, little boys, little girls, and also people who had been born with some sort of physical abnormality and seeing how their bodies uh, differed in some way and what kinds of accommodations they needed to make to be able to do basic motion things. So there is a, a, a sort of an attempt anyway at being scientific, even though uh, he maybe falls a little short in terms of actual scientific stuff. So at some point, Moybridge recognizes a very important fact, that all along he was breaking motion down. But what he recognized was that in addition to breaking motion down, he could also reconstruct motion. So he figured out that if he took motion, these individual images that he had created, and if he took those individual images, and he put them together in such a way that as someone was looking at them, they only saw one image for a fraction of the time. So one image after another image, after another image, after another image, one, then the next, then the next, 
etc., etc. I almost need enough. Enough of you stayed away today. That I think I might have enough for for everybody. You pass one to your left there. Mm. You pass one over there. Look at that. I got one for everybody. How about it? How many actual pictures are used, different pictures are used to create this? So how many individual pictures are used? You know, it really depends on how long the, the flip book are. Some of you have one that's, you know, a couple, I've got a couple that are two or three, you know, maybe an inch, maybe an inch tall, you know? So as far as perception. To make these, like to make this guy, I think it's six. I think it's just six pictures. Right. Because uh, I made these out of just taking individual, you know, individual <laughs> images and just putting them into a video software and showing them one after another. So Moybridge essentially discovers that his ability to stop motion creates the ability to recreate motion. Movies. Movies. Edward Moybridge is considered the father of the motion picture. Because without Moybridge, nobody would have really recognized that not only could motion be broken down, but that if motion was viewed sequentially, what happened was this sort of phenomenon that appeared to recreate that motion out of still images. And it's the same technology we're using today for motion pictures television, video, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, Moybridge came up with a number of different methods to do this. He first started out by projecting glass lantern slides, glass plates that were positives, one after another after another fairly quickly. Then he came up with a couple of other devices, one that he called the zoopraxiscope, which was a drum the inside of which was mounted with all of these different photographs, sequentially sequenced one and then the next and then the next, and then slits in the edge of the drum so that when you spun the drum around, what you saw was one picture through the slit in the drum, but just for a fraction of a second, and then the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. So Moybridge ends up becoming the, the sort of inventor of motion pictures. But it wasn't until Moybridge's ideas were put together with this guy's ideas that motion pictures became reality. So here he is on the left, Thomas Alva Edison. And Edison had kind of put together a number of different puzzle pieces. One was this idea that stop motion pictures could be recreated or put together to recreate the sense of motion. The other is that Eastman had come up with the ability to make this flexible film so that the flexible film could be put into a camera, rolled up, and you could have a big long strip of it. And then you could use perforations in the side of that film to engage little gears inside the camera and then later inside the projection equipment that would move a fresh, unexposed piece of this film into place, make an exposure, have the shutter close, move another piece, open, close, move, open, close, move, open, close, and have it happen very rapidly. So Edison comes up with a much more commercially feasible method of doing what it is that Moybridge had already sort of thought of. 
And he does it by putting things together. Now, what was really interesting is that Edison wasn't really interested in movies per se. He was really interested in having people have some uh, visual accompaniment to his already very successful phonograph. The phonograph that Edison had figured out was already important, was already being used, and he figured that people needed something to keep their eyes busy while they were listening. So he comes up with motion pictures. So, uh, and of course, the other interesting thing is that Edison thought that motion pictures, the way we view them, were not really going to be something that anybody would want. So he came up with this thing called the kinetoscope, individual presentation of those movies. So that you'd look down into this thing, crank a crank, and <clears throat> show the film lit up from behind by another one of Edison's inventions, the electric light bulb. And early motion pictures were very much like the one you just saw flitting across the screen, the dancer Carmen Sita. Motion was the only requisite. It's a little equal time for the ladies here. Strongman Sandow. <laughs> so there's no plot. <laughs> there's no uh... precursor of WWE. <laughs> All that was needed was motion. And looking at these things through one of these kinetoscope devices, Edison sort of genuinely believed that individual presentation was where the future of motion pictures were. He, he couldn't imagine people would go sit in the dark and watch a movie altogether the way we do, right? So. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. Yeah, precursing the, the Deb was waving her phone in the air for those of you in the club. So uh, now another interesting aspect of this was that Edison's American invention was uh, mirrored at least in part and then added on to uh, by a couple of uh, French brothers, the Lumiere brothers. Want to love love that, right? The Light brothers, kind of crazy, right? So. The Lumiere brothers, first of all, this video that's playing on the, on the right-hand side here, movie that's playing on the right-hand side, The Demolition of a Wall. They would go and show this movie of people knocking a wall down, but then they would play it in reverse and have the wall go back up. So Louis and Auguste Lumiere were pioneer contributors to the birth of motion pictures in the 1890s. The Lumiere camera over here on the left was a three-in-one device. A three-in-one device. This is kind of absolutely crazy, but true. This device could shoot the motion picture. Then it could be sealed up and used to process the film. And then it could be washed out and dried and used as a projection device. A three-in-one device. Kind of like, you know, nuts. I mean, I guess you know, Deb's going to wave her phone in the air too, right? You know, our our cell phones really do that, right? You know, they, you know same the same thing. But you know, from a chemical point of view, uh, pretty amazing. But the idea of running the film in reverse was a really interesting one, because for audiences of the time, it was disturbing. 
and a little more than magical, because they weren't used to the idea of time being, as Rebecca Solnit, the author of that book I showed you earlier, as she had said, time being a toy in men's hands. To this point, photography had always shown approximately what the human eye could see. But with Moybridge's breakthrough in stopping motion, along with his ideas, enhanced by others, of recreating that motion, photography became something that could see more than the human eye could see. It extended vision in new and unprecedented ways. And that whole idea that time could be manipulated was something that people really didn't quite grasp at first. It was magic to them that we could take time and use it in reverse in some way. Just or use the flipbook backwards. Use the flipbook backwards. So a couple of other little, uh, little nuggets that add on to this. One that we've talked about before, the mini-graph. Uh, the mini-graph was a motion picture testing tool. Uh, this was a camera designed to go out into the field and make test exposures of, uh, from, for the motion picture industry so that they could figure out what aperture and shutter speed they should use for that particular film stock so they didn't waste their time as they had all the actors in front of the camera. And this mini-graph was a really interesting device because while it wasn't really intended to be a still camera, it was a still camera that used this perforated film that was being used for the motion picture world. Well, all it took from the mini-graph to the next iteration was this guy, Oscar Barnack, to come up with this camera over here on the right, the Lights Optical Company's camera, or Leica, the Lights Camera, contraction of those two words, Lights Camera, the Leica. Barnack wanted to move away from traditional heavy plate cameras in search for a completely new form of photographic technology. And as early as 1905, he had the idea of reducing the negative format and enlarging the photographs at a later stage. From a device to test exposures for cinematic film, he developed the Leica, arguably the first truly successful small format camera in the world. The small format camera's picture of 24 by 36 millimeters was achieved at that time by doubling the 18 by 24, 24 millimeter cinema format. So the cinema cameras, the motion picture cameras, were using half of what we later defined as the 35 millimeter frame. So uh, due to World War I, the first Leica uh, was delayed a bit and it entered series production in 1924, introduced to the public in 1925. And the Leica almost instantaneously changed the face of photography. It changed the face of photography because suddenly, for the first time, photography was able to move around. The camera was really small, very lightweight, extremely portable, could be hidden underneath a jacket, pulled out at the last possible second, and a photograph could be made. So it wasn't just the speeding up of the ability to capture complex subjects, but rather the idea that the camera itself was faster to operate. And Henri Cartier-Bresson is the photographer who comes up with uh, uh, the, a, a, a sort of strategy for using 
this new kind of tool in an interesting way. And his idea was that you had to be in the right place at the right time, or maybe just a little bit before the right time, to be able to capture what he called the decisive moment. The decisive moment, a moment at which when you're in it, all of the elements kind of come together to create a, a sort of complete whole. So it's not just about the composition of the buildings and the wonderful framing of the you know, railing and the fence and everything, but also about where the people are in, uh, in this town uh, that he has photographed. Sort of intriguingly, I walked around a corner in Scano, in uh, Italy's Abruzzo province, and was sort of a, sort of amazed. Is that where it was to, taken? That's yeah. 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 the the little fence railing is gone, and they've made this a little less, you know, because this is a big drop. <laughs> what, so, what are the words up the, above the door, Jeff? Uh, I, I, let's see, uh, Latin. Anybody, any Latin Mother. scholars in the room? Yeah. Mother. Mother I don't know that one. Mother, I know. Mother and... The church. Yeah. So, oh, it's the church of the mother of something. Yeah. Did Scano over there and notice it, or did you know this was there? Like well, I knew that Cartier-Bresson had been in Scano, but literally walked around the corner and went, whoa. Oh. <laughs> you know, sort of like... But then it was a bit of scouting to kind of figure out where to stand. What is, this, what is the town again? Uh, Scano, S-C... A-N-N-O, Scano, and it's in the, the province of the Abruzzo. So that one railing is no longer there at all? This railing is no longer there, and then they safety-fied the fence. And I tried to wait for a decisive moment, and the best I could get is this uh, 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 attractive woman in a very tight outfit, and these guys are tripping out. <laughs> Good job. But it looks so, like the adjacent buildings in the background are the same. They're uh, very oh, similar. Yeah. Pretty close. You know, cars obviously have changed things since the 1920s. But um, what's really interesting is that in this town, the older women still wear the same traditional costume, like now, which is kind of crazy, but, you know, kind of amazing. So uh, the Leica became an indispensable companion for all situations, an integral part of the eye or an extension of the hand. Uh, Cartier-Bresson's decisive moment became an important part of how photographers worked. So a couple of more Cartier-Bresson photographs, uh, one of which I think we've already seen before, to kind of give you a sense of how important that moment had become. So if we think about some of the photographs we looked at at the very beginning of our time together this semester and looking at these moments that could have been any one of hundreds of moments, the smaller format camera, the speeding up of photography, changes everything. And Cartier-Bresson comes up with the decisive moment, which, by the way, is one of those great cocktail party, you know, photo cocktail party comments. You know, you're, you're at the gallery exhibition, you see a photograph on the wall, you want to talk to somebody, you sidle up to them, and you say, wow, that photographer really caught the decisive moment. And then, you know, the person says back to you, hey, you know a little bit about photography. Is that a pickup line? Yeah, could I'm not saying it is, it just could be, right? I'd like to give you a helping hand whenever I can, you know. You know, Andrew needs all the help. I have to speak. 
he's, 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 he's writing notes furiously in the back. He's now he's now he's looking up where he can go for a gallery exhibition. Can you tell us what Dunmore? No, no. Well, yeah, I, we don't have that kind of time. So one last uh, sort of interesting part of the puzzle is this guy. Harold Doc Edgerton. Everybody called him Doc. Harold Edgerton. Doc Edgerton. Born 1903, died 1990. <coughs> a scientist, a hard-nosed scientist, a scientist who never thought of himself as anything but a scientist, working at MIT, and working on synchronous motors. Trying to figure out how you could figure out if two motors were turning side by side, how could you know that they were turning at precisely the same revolutions per minute, you know, 1,700 RPMs? How could you photograph that so that you could figure out whether they were exactly the same RPM? And so he tried making photographs, putting a witness mark on a flywheel or something so that he could make a photograph of the two motors and see if the witness mark started at the same place, did it wind up at the same place. But of course he couldn't photograph it because at higher revolutions per minute, the witness mark was blurred. So he began to figure out ways that he could make shorter and shorter exposures. And what he discovered was that if he put certain kinds of gases into a tube and took all of the air out other than the gas and excited that gas with a tremendous amount of electricity, that he could make something that every one of you owns, an electronic flash. So Harold Edgerton invents the electronic flash by figuring out that putting gases under pressure in a, in a very, very small tube and sending huge amounts of electricity for a brief amount of time into that tube, what could be produced was a brilliant and very, very short burst of light, the electronic flash. And so what we get is Edgerton beginning to experiment with his new toy and making photographs of stop motion of the sort that nobody would have suspected prior to Edgerton coming up with the electronic flash with exposures in the one one-hundred-thousandth of a second range, rather than the one two-thousandth or even one four-thousandth of a second range. So that when we get uh, a drop of milk dropping into a pool of milk, we are able to see the crown of that milk. And, you know, these great bullet pictures. So Edgerton comes up with sort of the ultimate stop-motion device the electronic flash. And what's really interesting about Edgerton is this is a guy who would have claimed up and down until his death in 1990 that he never really thought of himself as a photographer. But the photographs were so incredibly interesting in terms of how they showed us things that we'd never seen before that he was widely exhibited and widely collected as a photographer, um, even though he never really thought of himself as a photographer. So. Uh, really an interesting sort of set of possibilities about stop motion and the way in which stop motion works. Uh